Hey, it's Rick Kettner here. Let's explore three valuable insights from The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. This book is all about why great businesses often fail in the face of disruptive technologies. Now, what it's not about is bureaucracy or poor planning or arrogance or short-term thinking or these kinds of things that we often associate with big businesses ultimately failing. Instead, it's about why the strengths of well-managed, customer-driven businesses are often the cause of their inability to take on disruptive technologies. And it goes on to explain what these businesses could do differently to avoid that fate. So whether you're in a startup that's looking to disrupt an established industry, or if you're in a large, successful company that is looking to avoid being disrupted. I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of this book. It's great if you're an entrepreneur, founder, CEO, or anyone else interested in business strategy. For me, it's right up there with books like Blue Ocean Strategy or Crossing the Chasm in that, as with those books, it takes a very common business issue and addresses it and explains how to overcome it. So with all of that in mind, let's dive into my three favorite insights from the book, starting with insight number one, sustaining technologies versus disruptive technologies. There are two kinds of innovations that tend to emerge in a given category. There are sustaining technologies and there are disruptive technologies. And as the book explains, sustaining technologies are really anything that creates innovation within existing products that appeal to existing customers. So all kinds of changes somebody might make to a product, so long as it appeals to the existing customers in that market. So for example, if we go back a couple of decades and we look at film photography, things like better lenses, more durable cameras, faster shutter speed, improved picture quality, any innovations within this area would all be filed under sustaining technologies. They're making the existing products better in terms of the things that are important to existing customers. And that last bit is really, really important. Now, if we move over to disruptive technologies, generally, these actually underperform relative to sustaining technologies. And so they do not end up appealing to existing customers. So for example, going back to film-based photography, when digital photography first started to emerge, it had things like lower picture quality, lower performance. Anybody that was really passionate about photography would actually see digital cameras at that time as largely a gimmick. It wasn't a real camera. It wasn't a tool that they could actually integrate into their workflow. Instead, what disruptive technologies typically have are other unique features that don't appeal to the existing customer base, but do appeal to a small, relatively insignificant, but emerging segment of the market. So for example, in some cases, they're going to be cheaper, simpler, smaller, perhaps more convenient. And so as was the case with digital cameras when they first emerged, they were more convenient in the sense that you could take a picture, you could immediately transfer it over to your computer and use it. It was also a little bit less expensive in the sense that you didn't have to buy film on a recurring basis. So even if the camera itself might have been arguably expensive relative to what it could compete with when it came to film photography, the overall experience was less expensive 
in the long term. And like I said, it was more convenient, but it didn't appeal to existing customers. Now, one really important concept that was explained in the book is how these two different kinds of technologies tend to compete against each other. And what tends to happen is, if you imagine a horizontal line that measures the minimum quality in terms of performance or functionality that a product needs to have to appeal to the overwhelming majority of customers in the market, you imagine this horizontal line, well, sustaining technologies typically far overshoot this line. So over time, let's go back to film cameras, for example, they get better and better and better in terms of picture quality, but it far exceeds what the average person actually needs from a camera. And this creates an interesting scenario because the emerging disruptive technology is far inferior, but suddenly, seemingly suddenly overnight, it can cross this threshold where even though it remains far inferior compared to sustaining technologies, so for example, digital cameras were still far inferior to film-based cameras, they would cross this threshold where suddenly, for the overwhelming majority of customers out there, it was good enough. The technology was good enough. And this can surprise an industry because they see this gap. They think, well, sustaining technologies are so much better, but they overshoot the customer demand and suddenly they can be surprised when people are more than willing to switch to this new disruptive technology. Now, all of this begs the very obvious question, well, why don't these big established companies simply invest in both? Why don't they invest in sustaining technologies and pursue disruptive technologies? And that takes us to insight number two. Investing in disruptive technologies isn't rational. There are three really good reasons why great companies are often hesitant to invest in disruptive technologies. Number one, disruptive products are often simpler and cheaper, and this generally results in far lower margins and far lower profits. Number two, they're typically first commercialized in insignificantly small or emerging markets, so they're not particularly interesting. Number three, the most profitable customers in the market generally do not want them or can't use them. So even if they are potentially the future, existing customers are simply not interested in them. And so as a result, disruptive products tend to be first embraced by the least profitable customers in the market. And so if we go back to our example from earlier, the overwhelming majority of photographers out there are buying film-based cameras. That's where they're spending all their money. They're the customers that are driving all of the revenue in the industry. And so a great business that's focused on being customer-driven is going to continue to cater to the needs of this kind of customer. And they're going to see the digital photography business as being this small, tiny, insignificant emerging market that really isn't worth their time and attention. And so as a result, Disciplined and well-managed companies do not pursue disruptive technologies. Their strengths, being customer-driven, having better planning, managing quality and making sure they're producing the best possible products for their customers, all of these things actually hurt and prevent their ability to pursue disruptive technologies. And the book goes on to explain five additional reasons why businesses, great, successful businesses, are hesitant to invest in disruptive technologies. I'm gonna focus on three more of them just to really drive this point home. Number one, 
Companies depend on customers and investors for resources. This is the lifeblood of any business. If you're not focused on pleasing your investors, if you're not focused on providing what your customers really demand of you, then you're simply not going to be successful in the market for very long, especially if there's any form of competition out there at all. If you're you know, the dominant player in a market and nobody can touch you, maybe you have some room to play. But if you're in a highly competitive industry and you're a well-managed business, then you're going to focus on your customers and you're going to focus focus on creating great returns for your investors. Number two, small markets don't solve the growth needs of large companies. This was a really key point for me because it's not just the fact that the bigger a business gets, the more insignificant these small markets are, but it's also the fact that you have to factor in different stakeholders. So for example, you have investors, but you also have employees, and your employees want to take on greater and greater responsibility. They want to have opportunities to earn more money over time and to make moves and con contributions to the business that are having a greater impact. And so pursuing some small little side project that may not be the future, there's some uncertainty there, that's a difficult decision to make. And that leads us to the third one, which is markets that don't yet exist can't be properly analyzed or vetted. And one thing that is very easy to take for granted today when we look back on an industry like film photography is that it's all obvious, right? That we knew that digital photography would eventually supplant traditional film-based photography, but these things aren't always obvious in the moment. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Today, in many ways, smartphone photography is overtaking digital photography. And so even though there are a large group of people out there that still prefer things like high-end DSLRs, which clearly take a far superior photo than the average smartphone out there, most people wouldn't have predicted that the average customer today would be more than willing to just have a smartphone camera. This is a more recent example, so it's a little bit easier, especially if you've been around the industry for 10 or 15 years and you kind of saw how this progressed. A lot of people thought, well, yeah, a smartphone camera is more convenient, but if I ever want serious photography, I'm going to take a DSLR, and that's slowly changing. And not only that, but of course, so software cameras like those in Instagram or in Snapchat or in other apps like this are introducing all sorts of new capabilities that no DSLR will ever be able to compete with, or at least they're not in any clear roadmap to begin competing with that in the future. And so these things are very difficult to predict. And so there's all kinds of risk, all kinds of uncertainty. There are no guarantees. You can't simply say, hey, we have to invest in this because it's the future, because it might not be, or you might simply not pursue it in the right way. And so all of that leads us to the next point, because the next question you're almost certainly going to have is, what are great businesses supposed to do in order to prepare themselves for disruptive technology? So with that in mind, let's continue on to insight number three. The solution is an independent organization. My biggest takeaway from the book by far is this idea that disruptive technologies should be pursued by independent organizations. You want to create a separate business or a subsidiary that is tightly optimized around creating products based on this disruptive technology. And there are a number of really important reasons why this is a far superior approach. Number one, you want to match the cost structure of the business to the lower margins of disruptive products. As we talked about earlier, initial disruptive products have much lower margins, much lower profitability, and you want to match these things because you don't want to be this massive organization that's pursuing 
you know, well-paying customers over here and then this tiny low margin opportunity over here. You wanna match those things and that's best done with an independent organization. Number two, it's critical to develop entirely new markets because again, these products generally do not appeal to existing customers in the market. So you have to figure out who those customers are and what they value and make sure that they are indeed interested in what it is that you have to offer. So you have to actually develop an entirely new market. And finally, number three, the team must be small enough to be motivated by what inevitably, at least early on, are gonna be small opportunities and small wins. You don't wanna be this massive organization with employees that are trying to move up and have a greater and greater impact in the organization, trying to motivate them to take on these small, tiny opportunities where even if they had a runaway success, it's still gonna be small relative to the overall business. You wanna align these things. You wanna tune an independent organization so that small wins matter. And that way you can even take somebody from your existing organization, put them in charge of this new subsidiary where doubling or tripling revenue within that space can be a large accomplishment for that specific business. Now, with everything here that we've talked about in mind, it's really important to understand the uncertainty of pursuing a new opportunity like this. It's not always clear what the best approach will be. Number one, it's not really clear that the new technology will in fact disrupt the existing market, but even if you knew that was the case, you still don't have total certainty around the best approach. A perfect example of this is when you look at DSLR cameras versus smartphone cameras. If you were to make the prediction with total certainty that smartphone cameras are the future, well, you might suspect that the best approach is to build a smartphone. And you might be wrong because perhaps software cameras like Snapchat or Instagram or other products like that might in fact be a better opportunity. Hard to know for sure. And of course, with any given situation, that might there might be many more different alternative paths you might be considering. So the point here is lots of uncertainty, lots of risk. You don't always know the best approach. Looking at what worked in the past, it's almost certainly a losing strategy because again, this is a completely new approach with a different set of customers. And so with all of this in mind, you wanna create this subsidiary to be ready to fail early, often, and inexpensively. You don't wanna to overcommit to any one strategy. You wanna be ready to pivot, to try new things, to pursue other opportunities so that you can figure out where the new disruptive technology is gonna have its greatest impact and so you can actually build a successful business. Now, one of the benefits of being a subsidiary as opposed to a startup that might be off on its own is of course you can benefit from resources from the larger organization, both in terms of money and in terms of talent. But it's very important that you remain independent because again, you have different customers, so you should have different processes and different values when it comes to how you provide value to customers. You need to maintain your independence. You wanna avoid being influenced by the larger organization which might have its own ideas about how best to approach this new disruptive technology. You wanna have this independent organization that's trying to figure it out on its own and is gonna be more likely to pursue creative paths like the smartphone camera example that I just provided where it might not be so obvious to the larger organization. So the core lesson here, kind of bringing everything together, when pursuing disruptive technologies, build an independent organization that is optimized for a new approach 
with new products that are targeting new customers. Anyway, those are my favorite insights from the book. There's so much more covered in this book, including detailed breakdowns of how disruptive technologies have impacted industries throughout history, and far more detail when it comes to how to avoid being disrupted with your own business. So whether you're a startup, whether you're an established business, it's in your best interest to really understand these ideas and to better prepare to either take on an established industry or to avoid having your business disrupted. Now, on a side note, a much sadder note, as I was preparing for this episode, I found out that Clayton Christensen, the author of this book, the author of many great business books, passed away earlier this year in January at the age of 67 due to complications with cancer treatment. My understanding is that he had cancer for a number of years and unfortunately passed away earlier this year Needless to say, a huge, huge loss for family, friends, the many people in the business community that were impacted by his work. I didn't have a direct and personal connection with Clayton Christensen. I've read a number of his books. He's indirectly through his work had a huge impact on me. I've really enjoyed his books. I have no doubt that his work, his insights, and his ideas will continue to live on and will continue to have a huge impact on entrepreneurs around the world. But unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Just a huge, huge loss. So, that's it for this episode. If you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, either about the book or perhaps about Clayton Christensen and the impact that he's had on the business community, I encourage you to share your comments down in the comment section below. If you're listening to the audio edition, I'll include a link in the show notes that will take you to the video edition so you can participate in the comment section there. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I hope you got something out of it despite this sad news here at the end, and I look forward to connecting with you again in a future episode. <laughs>